Hello everyone, and welcome to After Dark Analysis. Today we are going to be talking about the 1974 film Black Christmas. Black Christmas is considered by many to be one of the first straight-up slasher films, or at the very least a proto-slasher film. It blended yellow elements with a more Americanized style of filmmaking, it used POV shots to give us an idea of what the killer was seeing, and the setting being a large home in the suburbs near a college campus gives it an Anytown USA feel, even though it's a Canadian film. While it wasn't the first movie to do many of these things, it did blend these elements in a unique way that laid the foundation for the American slasher film. It's no surprise that a film with this much respect among horror fans is being remade. Again. Well, at the time of this recording, the remake just came out a few days ago, but in anticipation of the release, there has been tons of anger from genre fans directed at the remake's PG-13 rating, as well as your standard, oh my god, not another remake, Hollywood's running out of ideas, these are all pointless cash grabs. I am not here to dispute or support either of those ideas. What I am here to discuss is the surprising amount of anger that I'm seeing directed at the all-female cast and the marketing saying this is supposed to be a quote-unquote fiercely feminist film. People seem to be under the impression that the original Black Christmas was completely devoid of any kind of feminist leanings or social commentary. The issue with this argument is Black Christmas is absolutely a feminist film. The nuts and bolts of this movie are a group of women are being offed one by one by a mysterious man who has been harassing them via phone calls where he moans and says vulgar things. Let's reframe that scenario into a more modern context. Somebody sends somebody else unsolicited but sexually explicit messages and then goes ballistic when they're told that's not okay or worse yet, the other person doesn't respond. A real world scenario that's becoming more commonplace causing this plotline to age like a horrifying wine. So we have a madman who is harassing a sorority full of women who don't seem to be going to school for their missus degree. Their independence is embodied by our final girl, Jess. Jess is in a bit of trouble because she is pregnant. And since she is pregnant, we can logically deduce she's not a virgin. The virginal survivor girl trope is more of a product of Halloween's Laurie Strode. Though Jess does set up some elements for the final girl trope on her own. Specifically, self-sacrifice. Towards the end of the film, Jess runs upstairs while a cop's on the phone, screaming at her to get out of the house. The problem is she doesn't know the friends she's trying to go upstairs and warn are already dead. Making this read more as loyalty to a sad, futile fault than an act of pure stupidity, which the trope has more or less devolved to. Jess is the perfect target for our killer, Billy, who takes exceptional issue with women being sexual. Except for the first sister he kills is assumed virgin Claire. Claire's own father believes the sorority is filled with debauchery and immorality when he sees a poster of nude people making a peace sign and another one of an old woman giving the finger. Him and the house mother have an exchange in Claire's room. Him saying, I intend to do something about it in regards to the perceived immorality and the house mother assuring him that Claire is a quote unquote good girl during this exchange, both characters have red flowers in the background. Red flowers will be a reoccurring theme. Think Georgia O'Keeffe and her flower paintings. Her father's demeanor implies a very conservative, old-school background. Other comments from the women in the house insinuate that Claire has kept this kind of attitude even while away at college. 
Almost immediately after this scene, the house mother loses her cat. And the father just so happens to stumble upon her while she is calling the cat a prick. Female sexuality is all over this movie, just to varying degrees of seriousness. Putting these conflicting viewpoints on display is trying to give us some kind of context as to why somebody like Billy would view all women as filthy sluts, even when there's evidence to the contrary. Going back to our final girl, Jess, she is considering an abortion. Keep in mind Roe vs. Wade had happened less than a year before this movie came out. This plotline sets up her boyfriend Peter as a red herring, but it also gives us a sense of their relationship dynamic. The practicality with which she proposes the option is stereotypically pretty masculine. Earlier in the film, she also refuses to say I love you too to Peter when they're on the phone, simply responding back with I know. Not telling your partner you love them when other people might overhear is also more of a guy thing to do. Peter approaches the situation emotionally. He suggests a happily ever after ending. This and him majoring in music all reek of antiquated notions in femininity. Peter proposes, and when she rejects him with logical reasons, he throws a fit, but seems more concerned about the fact that he's going to have to play piano after this conversation than with the fact that his girlfriend is pregnant and no matter what they do, it's going to be a serious situation. Jess even confirms that outbursts like that are pretty common with him and has a you-know-what-he's-like mentality about the matter. One of these outbursts leads to him smashing up a piano. Billy also throws very similar fits, which we get to see through POV. The rejection of the marriage proposal can be interpreted as Jess refusing traditional female roles, specifically wife and mother. But I'd also like to add, the interactions we see between the two is not the banter of a happy couple, even before Peter knows about the pregnancy. Jess wants to abort because she wants to keep the potential career that she's going to school for. Peter wants her to keep the baby because of his beliefs. It doesn't come off like he feels that he's necessarily destined to be a father or that they would be a good fit to raise this child. Their relationship mirrors the loveless and sometimes abusive marriages people got stuck in when divorce was so stigmatized, it wasn't really viewed as an option. These conflicting and debatably cavalier attitudes lead to abortion being described as just like having a wart removed, a phrase that is later hissed over the phone by Billy. The oh god Jess exclaims in response is the only time we see the concern we'd expect from someone in her situation. And even then, given the context, it's clearly more about her realizing that the killer can somehow hear them. Unbeknownst to her or her sisters, the calls are coming from inside the house. This is a clear reference to the well-worn urban legend, The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. In fact, this film was originally called The Babysitter Murders, just like Halloween. So it's no surprise they often get compared to one another. And it's a widely held belief that Black Christmas heavily influenced Carpenter's film. There is way too much to unpack with that urban legend for this episode. But the clear morality of that story is you're not safe, even in your own home. And women, mind your children. Or maybe the moral is like, don't babysit. <laughs> A fair amount of these sorority sisters drink, smoke, and talk about sex openly. Even the older, frumpy house mother tries on sleepwear that the sorority purchased for her as a gag gift. While she puts the pajamas on over her clothes, it's clear that this independent woman is corrupting our youth. Not to mention she has a bit of a drinking problem. 
and the sisters give alcohol to children and swear in front of them, perpetuating this hedonism. Because none of this is subtle. But then there's Barb, the least subtle of them all. Barb drinks, smokes, swears, and makes lewd comments right back at Billy. She is the over-the-top idea of what the new woman should be. Completely unladylike and overtly sexual. Right down to her choker. She tells a room full of people that there is a species of turtle that can get it on for three days straight. Even though the conversation, a thin veil for her own sexuality, is making people visibly uncomfortable. She is shoving it down our throats, so to speak. A common argument against people's sexuality or people being overtly sexual. When one of the sisters expresses concern about Barb talking back to Billy, she gives the standard city girls have to be tough speech and claims to get several calls like that a day back home. Personifying the I refuse to be a victim mindset that we see all through feminist representations in pop culture. But for all her strengths, she can still be problematic. When the subject of a recent rape comes up, she fires back with everyone knows you can't rape a townie. She also blames herself for running Claire off. Keep in mind at this point, they don't know she's dead. Because she nearly constantly teased her about her sex life, or lack thereof. While Barb is empowered in her own sexuality, she's dismissive of the choices of other women when they don't line up with hers. Or in the case of Billy and the rape that occurred, she is dismissive of violence against women. Barb gets killed by being stabbed repeatedly by a glass unicorn. This hard, cylindrical object is an obvious euphemism for the dangers of the promiscuous sex she's been engaging in, creating a ripple in celluloid that we're still feeling to this day. This is also the most graphic kill in the film, for the character that was the most over-the-top and sexual. Now, if you're asking yourself, where are the cops in all of this? They do report the phone calls fairly early in. They're dismissed as a prank by a boyfriend, with a very boys-will-be-boys attitude. On one of the first calls, we hear Billy straight up threaten to kill them after saying repeatedly that he wants to have sex with them. In many portrayals of harassment like this, the victim is turned away because they don't have enough evidence for them to consider it a credible threat. This is still a current real-world issue with stalking laws in many places. When Billy expressed that he wanted to kill them, Billy became a credible threat. In that moment, this went from a bunch of women overreacting and became an issue that was ignored and will raise and continue to beg the question, why wasn't more done? All the missing parties are assumed by police to be shacking up for the weekend. One of the officers even has the same attitude towards a missing 13-year-old girl. Of course, this assertion only comes after finding out that her father is a truck driver who leaves her mother alone for long periods of time, effectively making her a single mother. This is 1974. Single mothers were a lot less commonplace than they are in 2019, and they came with a bigger stigma attached. The officer's attitudes plays into the women smart, men dumb trope that we see all the time in pop culture, regardless of genre. Barb even convinces one of the young cops that fellatio is a new phone exchange. It isn't until he mentions it to a higher up that he finds out the word has a another meaning. When the cops finally do come to the house, their line of questioning implies that they think Claire drank too much at the party, has emotional problems, and multiple boyfriends. He has no reason to think any of that, aside from they had a party at the house, even after finding out that she didn't really drink. Another significant thing about Claire's kill coming first, since she isolates herself from the party, meaning her sisters, right before it happens. A theme that continues all throughout the film. Yes, tactically speaking, it makes sense to attack an individual 
as opposed to a group all at once. But there's an undercurrent of the belief that women need to watch each other's backs to ensure they don't fall victim to the world around them. Removing herself from the company of her metaphorical sisters is bound to get you hurt or killed, as the case may be. At the end of the film, Jess is lying in bed, heavily sedated. As the cops are leaving, we hear Billy stalking around. Jess is alone, her sisters are dead, and the police have failed her once again. The end credits start to roll over the sound of the phone ringing. Between never seeing Billy and never finding out why he's like this, he becomes more than a faceless killer. He becomes an amalgamation of sexism and misogyny. He becomes every guy that couldn't take no for an answer. The things Billy says sound exactly like the rhetoric spewed by nice guys and incels, fluctuating wildly between, I want to have sex with you, and I want to murder you because you have sex. In regards to the remake, one of the co-writers was quoted as saying, The killer in the original represents misogyny. You think you've gotten rid of it, but it's still in the shadows and will come when you totally let your guard down. Nowhere is it more apparent than the final scene in the original film. While going through this, there were a lot of complaints from people that had seen it, saying that the remake was too heavy-handed. That very well may be true. The problem is people asserting that the original had no political commentary and no viewpoint on women's rights. And that's just not true. This film wears its politics on its sleeve, and it is not subtle about doing so. So, if the remake is fiercely feminist as advertised, well, the source material was too. Thank you for listening. I'd like to take a moment out to thank my patrons, Ghani, Carla Hoffman, and Scotty Robot. This is normally where I would plug my Patreon, but it's currently on pause until my health will cooperate enough to allow me to make videos. Whether you support this channel financially or not, your time and viewership is always appreciated. Thank you.